This is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief of NEJM Catalyst, and we're talking today with Andrew Dreyfus, who is finishing a 12-year stretch as the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Now, this 12 years is just part of a longer period in which, he's, in which he has played a key role in driving healthcare reform for Massachusetts and therefore the, the rest of the country. You know, back in the 2004-2006 period, Andrew was a very important force in getting Massachusetts healthcare reform passed, which then became the model for the Affordable Care Act. During his time as CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Andrew and his colleagues have led the way in making population-based contracts a norm in Massachusetts through its now widely imitated alternative quality contract, the AQC in 2009. Now, even though this and other innovations have helped reduce Massachusetts uninsured rate in the, uh, down to a low of about 3%, uh, and it's also helped bend the rise uh, in healthcare costs, Andrew, I'm sure, feels that we're still far from an ideal place. So at this point in, the, in healthcare history and also a change transition pending in his own career, I wanted to ask Andrew for his thoughts on what needs to be done and how we can go about it. So first, Andrew, let me get your high-level take about how things are going in our state of Massachusetts. What's going well, and where do we have to get better? Sure, Tom, and first, thanks for inviting me to um, be part of this conversation. Well, so first, obviously, uh, my thoughts turn to COVID, which is still top of mind. And uh, you know, the last two years have been incredibly challenging for our healthcare systems, our Clinicians are stretched, staffing is a challenge everywhere. But I think we fared relatively well as a state compared to many other parts of the country. And I think one of the reasons is that our healthcare system has for so many years, and you kind of mentioned this, worked on a high level of collaboration, communication, commitment. We're still largely a not-for-profit healthcare community here, and we have a lot of shared history working together on the coverage reform you mentioned, on payment reform among other challenges. But having said that, um, I'm really concerned about affordability today. You know, we've always been an expensive state on a relative basis, but for the last decade, we've actually held the growth in costs below the national average and, and pretty close to overall inflation. But that's no longer the case, and we're increasingly concerned about that. Now, the AQC is 12 years old, and, and it was started with an idealistic vision. Uh, no surprise, knowing you and your team. Um, the goal was to improve quality while also controlling costs at the same time. Uh, that's the way the financial incentives were structured. How would you say it's going at this point? Um, well, so Tom, the most recent formal evaluation of the AQC, as we called it, was published a few years ago by Harvard Medical School researchers, and it covered the first eight years of the program. And they found that uh, spending in this value-based payment model was about 12% lower than the control group. And this reduced spending came from many routes from fewer overuse tests and imaging uh, patients being directed to lower cost settings, um, fewer ED visits, uh, et cetera. But what was striking, as you said, was that um, we also saw substantial quality improvements and we saw dramatic increases in quality measures like control of blood pressure or 
A1C for people with diabetes. And that was at a time when national measures for these same kind of chronic illnesses were mostly stagnant. They weren't getting better. And interestingly, one published study on the AQC even found that the quality gains were actually larger among practices serving uh, lower income communities and starting to reduce disparities of care, something I imagine we'll come back to talking about it. But I think um, maybe I was most proud of was about the kind of collaborative nature of the success. We didn't just um, offer these financial incentives to these clinical groups and allow them just to kind of sort this out on their own. We partnered deeply with them to help drive successes. We had leadership training, networking groups. Um, we partnered on data sharing and um, really uh, allowed the practices themselves to kind of understand their own data, and target improvements and, and take actions. Um, we're still doing this. We've uh, started to recently explore reports based on the kind of cost ca cascade paradigm. You're probably familiar with Tom, originally developed by Brigham and Harvard Medical School researcher, Shani Ganguly. Um, and the point there is that this can be a relatively kind of small parts of low value care, for example, an EKG before cataract surgery or an MRI for low back pain. Because they're not that costly or prevalent, there's little incentive to try to address them. But then what we find is uh, these relatively low cost interventions subsequently trigger a much larger cost cascade. And when you kind of quantify that, it really changes the value equation. Um, and really increases a lot of low value care. So with that kind of example, with earlier examples where we gave um, uh, other kind of population-based care to our practices, we're trying to thread this needle on and interventions are truly actionable uh, that actually have substantial uh, savings opportunities. And so um, we're excited about what we've accomplished with the AQC. We know it doesn't fix anything. Um, for example, we know that that kind of model creates weak incentives for specialty physicians and hospitals to control costs at really the broadest population level. Um, we also know that payment reform, at least in this example, can exacerbate some problems. For example, we suspect that hospital systems keep on growing, meaning acquiring either more hospitals or more physician groups, both as a way to achieve scale and better performance, but also as a way to negotiate higher prices, which can then drive up costs. And so when I started uh, this process, uh, working with people like you, Tom, and others, I was really convinced that integration and coordination held great promise both to improve care and lower costs. I think we have seen some real examples of improved care and some lower costs, but I think we've also seen some examples where it, it kind of stimulated consolidation in the healthcare field. Well, my take is that um, integration is something that is potentially good if the market forces are there to compel the unlocking of its potential. And I think that part of the secret sauce of Massachusetts healthcare is everyone does know everyone. So it is easier to get people to sit down at the table and collaborate um, in the fashion that you describe. And I also think it's a great thing that all along you and your colleagues were able to trust independent researchers to evaluate the impact of what you were doing. I don't know that many organizations have that kind of trust in uh, their colleagues. And I 
can't help but feel the face-to-face acquaintanceship that so many of us have is part of what's uh, explained the ability to collaborate in the past. But now, how are you thinking about what to do next? You said affordability is what you're obsessing about. Uh, Are there specific segments of healthcare that you think provide the most opportunity to improve or create efficiency? Well, um, there's a lot of areas. I mean, I think all of us in the healthcare field have kind of watched with kind of interest and maybe even wonder at the kind of rapid adoption of telemedicine and other forms of virtual care as a consequence of the pandemic. Um, But I think they offer real opportunities in the right settings for the right patients uh, in the right specialties to create real efficiencies and to eliminate some of the overhead costs uh, that come with healthcare. Um, I still think we have a long way to go, Tom, on chronic illness. We know that you know, 1% of, of patients drive more than 25% of the care and 5% drive about half of the total cost of care in the US. And while there are a few very expensive patients for heart transplants or neonatal intensive care, the vast majority of those patients have multiple chronic illnesses. And I think we're still not doing the kind of work we need to do to kind of better coordinate that care, um, make it less fragmented, have a better consumer experience for patients themselves. Um, you know, I, we've been looking lately at end-stage renal disease, which is a, you know, a field which, although we've been focused on it in some ways for a number of years, I think there are some new new organizations that are trying to uh, disrupt it, which is, I know it's an overused uh, word in this field, but disrupt the kind of traditional uh, end-stage renal disease care, try to have more, for example, home dialysis over, over um, hemodialysis, uh, try to prevent uh, end-stage renal disease where that's possible. And so I'm kind of encouraged by some of these point solutions. Um, another area where I'm spending a lot of both personal time and our organization time is in mental health. I mean, this is an area that obviously the pandemic has kind of unmasked a underlying kind of sep- second epidemic of uh, mental health concerns and emotional distress. I think those of us in healthcare have known it's always been there. We've always been frustrated that it's been kind of so much in the silo and not well integrated with um, primary care and preventive care. And so I think there's some real opportunities to, to work there. Well, let's make the somewhat safe assumption that the point uh, focuses like mental health, uh, end of life, uh, are, are good, but not enough in their impact. Uh, so at a broader structural level, uh, how are you thinking about payer provider integration? If the AQC contract model was not enough to spur as much fundamental redesign as we need, what are some of the other options? Yeah. Well, first of all, I agree with your assumption there, Tom, is that we can come up with um, elegant point solutions for some of these um, uh, clinical areas, but it it will be insufficient. Um, So I think we still have to kind of elevate primary care to a different level than it's been. I think some of us had hoped that through value-based models like the alternative quality contract that we would kind of rebalance care a little bit between primary care and specialty care, and we would kind of elevate primary care. And I think it had somewhat of that effect. Um, I think we brought more care coordination, um, advanced practice nurses and other uh, clinicians into the primary care setting. And I think that helped, but I still think 
Um, the underlying fee-for-service chassis is still very powerful, especially at uh, large tertiary referral organizations that get a lot of their care from outside their own PCP network. And so I think we really have to kind of go more towards a, um, I don't like to use the C word, the capitation word, because I think it's such a kind of ugly word and conjures a lot of um, uh, understandable kind of bad sentiment for physicians. Um, but I think we need more kind of monthly upfront payments to kind of liberate PCPs more from, uh, from the kind of fee-for-service kind of structure which will encourage more virtual care, phone care, in-person care. You know, there's a debate going on right now among plans and, and hospitals and physicians on how much should we be paying for a virtual visit? Should it be the same as an in-person visit? Should it be some 80% of an in-person visit? And those debates would, would kind of go away if we were truly paying uh, population-based payments kind of upfront to, to primary care practices. And we're using, we announced a pilot in that area um, a couple of years ago, and we've, we've started those. Um, and I'd like to see some of these physician groups are connected to some of our larger community hospitals, which again, are, can be an affordable site of care. Um, so I think, you know, the, the accountable care model um, is, is still um, less than it should be. Um, and I'm excited to try to partner with low-cost uh, groups of physicians and hospitals and community health centers and others to see can we kind of have a, yet a second kind of evolution of value-based payments. Now, you are investing a lot across the board, not just with the tightly aligned organizations, in trying to improve equity in healthcare. And knowing your history before you were in your current role, I'm not one bit surprised. But from a business perspective, why does this make sense for Blue Cross yeah. Blue Massachusetts? Yeah, so I'm actually working, uh, trying to start to write a, a paper on this, Tom, to try to talk about how do you build competitive advantage um, by investing in changes around issues like uh, health equity and mental health. So uh, a couple thoughts on that. First of all, our customers, which are principally um, large employers, but also smaller employers and individuals, they're truly interested in equity. They're interested as a social good, but they're interested as a differentiator uh, for their own employees. And I would say the same is true in mental health. I recently spoke to a group of high-tech executives. Almost all their questions were about mental health and how best to um, deal with the mental health needs of their, of their um, workers. And so I think there is a business case to invest uh, in health equity. Um, what we're doing is first, um, you know, we took a look, Tom, using imputed data um, at our own, uh, the own, our own members and what disparities existed and we published that. And so the first thing we wanted to be very transparent, here's how we're doing along a set of well-defined and well-established um, stable quality measures. And what is the difference of performance between our, for our white patients, our black, Asian and Latin patients and, and no surprise, there were substantial gaps. What we then did is did a kind of equity audit and we gave to our physician practices who we work with in these value-based programs. We gave them their own data on their disparities. And interestingly, some of them had some of their own data. Many of them had no data uh, to, to understand their own equities. And we gave them their own data and then we gave them all the 
the other practices in the state, blinded, of course, so they could see how are they performing relative to their peers. Um, the next step was we entered a, an arrangement with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement here in Boston. We made a $25 million commitment to them to work with practices, including giving direct grants to each of the practices first to kind of establish the infrastructure they would need um, to both collect uh, data and then act on making improvements. And then starting next year, of course, subject to negotiation, we're gonna to start to put equity measures in our AQC and our value-based program um, so that we can actually reward um, our practices for uh, reducing and hopefully over time eliminating those inequities. Well, in closing, can you give us some insight into the vision for your health insurance company that uh, in a five to 10 year time frame that you might share with your board today? Yeah, uh, sure. You know, Tom, um, last year we did some um, analysis and study and surveying of our own members that they, they called it ethnographic research, which I thought was probably a little overstated, but rather than online surveys or phone calls, we actually sat in kitchens and living rooms with our members and asked them what they wanted from their health plan and what they wanted specifically from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. And we were really heartened to hear that they said that we want your help when we're um, in need of healthcare services. The healthcare system, no surprise, is scary, complex, expensive, fragmented, uh, and we want you to be there to help guide us. And so from there, we kind of uh, took the phrase trusted allies, what they're looking for in their health plan as a trusted ally. So while a health plan like Blue Cross will continue to pay claims and build networks and uh, develop products uh, and, and work with employers. I think the future is gonna be collaborating even more closely with our clinical partners in the healthcare delivery system to create uh, uh, and navigate um, the healthcare experiences for our members. And in some cases that may be offering them new options um, where we just invested in and are partnering with a new company called Brightline, first in the first plan in the country to offer it that is a new model for children's mental health that tries to take care of the whole family and includes coaching and obviously therapy and, and prescribing where appropriate. And so we're gonna offer some new models uh, to our members, but we also understand that the vast majority of the care they're still gonna get in physicians offices and hospitals here in Massachusetts. And we wanna continue to collaborate closely uh, with those um, with those clinical partners to create a differentiated experience for our members. I think that will keep us successful and thriving as a health plan and maintain that kind of collaborative spirit that you talked about at the beginning, Tom, that is so distinctive and, and makes such a difference here in Massachusetts. Well, you know, Andrew, I wanna thank you for your time and all your good work. I do feel that uh, Massachusetts is a special case in that uh, we're a relatively small state and we're all concentrated together. And the collaboration that that makes natural has made certain things possible that I do think are useful for the rest of the country. Uh, we do have very good quality Massachusetts. Uh, we do have the best coverage in the country. Um, we are expensive, uh, but we're working on the, on the cost issue uh, with some success, not enough, but some. Uh, I, I think that if whatever success we've had 
uh, you personally and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, you've definitely been a key part of the secret sauce. So thanks for all that. And I look forward to your next act, uh, your health plans next act. And I hope we'll be talking with any Jim Catalyst readers about it along the way. So thanks again, Andrew. Thank you so much, Tom.